Amen. It is uh, so good to be together this evening, so good to get to open God's Word together. I want to tell you guys a story that many of you may already know of several football players. I know that preachers using football analogies gets old, but I'm going to do it again. Um, There's a well-known family in football, the Manning family, and they all play football. The grandfather, Archie Manning, uh, was the quarterback for the Saints back in the 70s. And even though the Saints weren't all that good during those years, he was highly respected. Um, and Archie had three sons. His three sons were Cooper, Peyton, and Eli Manning. Um, probably you have not heard of... Sorry? That's right, yep. You've probably never heard of Cooper because uh, he had a spinal injury in high school and never played college. But Eli and Peyton both played in college and in the pros and are very uh, well-known football quarterbacks. However, Cooper, even though he was injured, had a son named Arch. He named him after his grandfather. And Arch Manning is uh, a college football player now. And he's sort of the golden child of college football. And people say that being a quarterback runs in his veins. And people that have been on teams with Arch Manning have said that he's an extremely hard worker, that he's very humble, and that he lives and breathes football, that it's a part of who he is. And just like how Arch Manning lives and breathes football and it's a part of who he is, we can see that expressed in what he does, in him waking up every day and going to practice, in him eating a healthy diet, in him disciplining himself and focusing and watching tape and doing the monotonous things that nobody wants to do in order to get better. We see those actions, and the actions show us the character of the individual. Analogies always fall short, but I think we'll see a similar thing about God's nature and God's character in this passage, that as we see what God does, it reveals to us who he is. We're going to be looking together at Galatians uh, chapter 1, and I just realized I turned to, oh, I just wrote Galatians and it should be Colossians. <laughs> so I did turn to the right passage. We're going to be looking at, um, at the book of Colossians, and this book has a specific focus on Jesus Christ and on the sufficiency of his work. The early church was largely plagued by the desire to go away with other cultic groups or to go back into Judaism, and that desire is always plaguing at the early church. What Paul encourages the church to focus on is that Christ is enough in the book of Colossians. I'm going to start reading in Uh, verse 19 of chapter 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, 
and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I pray that the hearing of your word would cause conviction of sin, that you would motivate us to live righteously, and that you'll show us Jesus in a more beautiful and believable way this evening. We pray this uh, in your name, in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. The first thing that we can see in this passage is that Jesus is the exact revelation of God's nature. Verses 19 and 20, where we started, is the end of what is often thought to be an early church hymn. Paul is referencing this hymn in order to focus the Colossians and clarify a few doctrinal points. Um, in the beginning, we in the beginning of this hymn, the Apostle Paul recounts what the nature of Christ is in verses 15 through 18. In verse 16, he talks about how Christ is the creator of all things. Also in verse 16, he talks about how Jesus is the goal of all things. So not only does he start all things, but he's also the end. And third, he talks about how Jesus is the head of the congregation, the church, and shares his inheritance with them. Um, and different translations translate this differently, um, but saying he's the head of the body, the church, um, this is a, a reference to the term ecclesia, which is used to talk about the church, and it is also used to talk about the congregation of Israel. And there's a parallel there that Christ is the head of God's people, both of the Old Testament saints who believed in the future coming of Christ and of us, New Testament saints, who look back at the work of Christ. Finally, I'm going to read Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And so Christ, being the heir of all things, being the one who deserves all things, is one who shares that inheritance with us because we have been adopted as brothers and sisters of him. So now that he talks about how we've become heirs with Christ in verses 15 through 18, the following verses recount how we have become heirs with Christ, how a once alienated people became reconciled through Jesus. The first thing that he says in verse 19 is that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. It dwells in him. Him refers to Christ and refers to God's nature being present in the whole person of Christ, not just part of Christ. So we don't believe that Christ was half human and half God. We don't believe Christ was any other proportion. We don't believe that Christ was God in one aspect, but human in another aspect. No, Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God in all aspects of his being. Paul intentionally doesn't divide the person of Christ. And this specifically contradicts some of the early Gnostic teachings that started to crawl into the church. You see, Gnosticism taught that humans could achieve spiritual enlightenment through rejection of the physical world and through ascent into the spiritual world. And Gnosticism often taught that Christ was born a mere human 
and achieved godhood through surrender to the Holy Spirit and through spiritual enlightenment. And at the same time, Paul contradicts this, saying that the full essence of God is within Christ, even from his conception. Even from the conception of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas time, God was present in Christ. Second, we see, or third, we see that the fullness of God was present. All of God's nature was in all of Christ. You see, the Trinity is not three persons with three different natures. It's three persons with one nature. And so as we see the person of Jesus Christ, he is an image that can show us who the Father is. And Jesus says this throughout his ministry. His disciples ask him, show us the Father. And Jesus says, well, I've been with you the whole time. What are you missing here? I am the Father. Though the eternal Son of God exists as an individual, he is of the same nature as the Father. And this is why the Nicene Creed describes Jesus as being of one substance with the Father. Jesus and the Father have identical natures, but they have different roles. We see this here as well. Christ came to be the Redeemer. And as Christ redeemed us, God acted as judge, affirming the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, as we'll see later. We also see um, that the nature of God was pleased to dwell. And to us, dwelling seems like a temporary thing. It seems like, oh, well, I'll go live here for a time and then I'll move on. And in our world today, where the idea is you, you know, buy a house, pay it off in 15 years, and then move to another house and pay it off in 15 years, move to another house. But in the ancient, uh, sorry, in the Greco-Roman world, that would not have been as common. It was very common for families to live in the same house throughout their whole lives. And so dwelling here does not imply a temporary residence, but it implies a permanent fellowship. Jesus is saying that, G, that, or sorry, Paul was saying that Jesus's union of man and God is a permanent union. Jesus's incarnation then shows us the beginning of God's redemptive work to bridge the gap between himself and humans. Next, verse 20 continues on and says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what we see now is that Jesus reveals to us God's desire to redeem his people. Jesus' work reveals to us Jesus' nature, and Jesus and the Father are of one nature. There are two aspects to this reconciliation that Paul writes about. First, Jesus reconciles his people um, to the Father. And second, Jesus reconciles the whole creation into right order with the Father. These are also examples of things that present an already and not yet type of situation. There's an already aspect to these things and there's a not yet aspect. We have already been reconciled to the Father as believers who believe in Christ on earth, who have 
have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. However, we are not currently in the presence of God the Father and will be in the new Jerusalem. And at the same time, the creation has not yet fully been redeemed. Um, We know that there is an eschatological aspect to this work, that Jesus' work completes and begins at the same time. That as Christ died, he reconciled people to himself and also began a process of reconciliation for the world. We also see him say that he reconciled to himself all things. And so this has to make us ask the question, what does Paul mean when he says all things? Does he mean a universal redemption, what we might call universalism? I don't think that he does. I think often saying all things doesn't refer to every single thing that exists, but it refers to all types of things. And it also refers to a holistic type of redemption. And so when Paul says that Jesus reconciles to the Father all things in earth or on heaven, I think he is specifically recounting the recreation of the world that will happen in the new heavens and the new earth. We see a similar type of thing happen in Romans 3, where it says, All have sinned and fallen short of of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, we do believe all have sinned, but we don't believe that all are justified. And so these uses of all can refer both to a universal all and to a um, holistic all. Jesus Christ didn't come to justify everyone, though his sacrifice is sufficient to justify everyone. He only justifies whosoever would believe on him. Next, we see that he has made peace through his blood that's shed on the cross. There's two aspects to this peace. You see, there's a, an enmity and a separation between us and God. And so there needs to be peace that goes both ways. This peace also renews a right relationship. So it's a removal of animosity and a restoring of right relationship. And this happens through Christ's blood. This happens because of Christ's blood that he shed on the cross. It happens because Christ made a sacrifice and took our sins on himself and paid the punishment for those sins. The other thing that Christ's sacrifice does for us is it represents the end of a perfectly lived life. Christ not only died on our behalf, but he also lived on our behalf. You see, we needed to be saved from our own sin, but we also needed to be saved from our own righteousness. Because even our own righteousness, or as what we might think of as righteousness, is wickedness to God. Because the book of Romans says that everything done apart from faith is sin. Us living faithlessly, even doing things that we might consider morally good or morally correct, in an unsaved state, those things are not pleasing to God. And so Christ saves us in both aspects. 
Augustus Top Lady calls this the double cure, that we are both made righteous and our sin is removed. That we need not just our own actions to be removed from the equation, but we need good actions to be put in on our behalf. And Jesus Christ does that for us. Then verse 21 says, You who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I'm going to stop there. We see here the Colossians' former sinful state. First, they were alienated. And we talked about this just a minute ago, talking about the peace that Christ brings. You see, in our sinful state, we are separated from God. We are not able to have relationship with God in our sinful state because God cannot dwell with sinfulness. Our separation from God also is because of mutual hostility. The sinful man hates God because of his righteousness. And God is wrathful towards sin and towards sinners. And though God always seeks to redeem, his disposition towards those who don't believe in him is one of judgment. And so we need to never forget what we have been redeemed from. One of the reasons that in our corporate worship we often have times of um, confession or we have songs that incorporate elements of confession is that practicing confession helps us to understand and celebrate God's love better. If we don't understand how sinful we are, then God's love seems unimpressive. If we think we're all great on our own, well, then why wouldn't God just, you know, think the world of me? But if we are as fallen and lost as Paul says, then God's love is that much more remarkable. Despite God's just wrath towards sin and sinners, he loved us and saved us. And not only saved us, but saved us at such a high price, at the price of his own son. The second thing we see about the Colossians' sinful state is that they were hostile in mind. You see, this alienation that we have from God causes hostility both towards God and towards other people. Part of the curse of the fall is that we have interpersonal conflict. One of the things that God says to Eve is that um, she will, her desire would be over her husband, but that her husband would rule over her. And even in the most sacred and harmonious relationship, even in a marriage, there is hostility and there is conflict. And this is a result of the fall. Sin doesn't just corrupt us positionally. This is something I think we need to understand that sin doesn't just put us far away from God but it also corrupts us as individuals. It also corrupts our very nature. Sin destroys um, our ability to live righteously. And And the third thing that he says about the Colossian sinful state is that they were doing evil deeds. 
And so the alienation, which leads to the hostility of mind, then overflows into wicked deeds that are done uh, against other people. A nature that is corrupted by sin always overflows into evil actions. That's why the word says that we will know people's character by their actions. We will know if they're genuinely followers of God by their actions. Jesus told his disciples, people will know that you follow me if you love one another. Because our actions reflect our character. And even though we are now in a state where we're able to sin and able to not sin, and even though we make mistakes, our choices that we make do reveal our character. Evil deeds also create corrupt society. And when we see pain and suffering in the world, we need to understand that it's a result of sin. It's not a result of a random occurrence. It is a result of the sin that happened in the garden that continues on through every person who's ever lived till today. A friend of mine uh, has been writing a catechism. And if you don't know what a catechism is, it's basically a series of questions and answers that seeks to give you a picture of the whole Bible. And I'm going to just read a couple of his questions and answers. I think this helps us to understand um, how Paul talks about sin in this passage. So he starts out, where are we? In God's good creation, which was designed for perfect harmony when humans lovingly ruled it under God. What went wrong? When humans rejected God's design for their own ideas of good, the harmony was broken. They were exiled from God, punished with death, and became completely corrupt. Can humans fix it? No, even when instructed by God, we are too corrupt to obey and deserve to be punished. His fourth question is, what did God do about it? He sent his son Jesus to succeed where humans fail and take the punishment for them. He sent the spirit to remake humans so they can obey and he established a kingdom where his design is followed to draw humans back to him. This redemption, Jesus succeeding where humans fail, is what we see in the next passage, or in the next section of uh, this chapter of Colossians. It says in verse 22, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So Christ's reconciliation first is said to happen in his body of flesh. This shows us the importance of the incarnation. We come together every Christmas and we celebrate uh, the incarnation of Jesus. But I think sometimes we don't realize the significance of it. And I think sometimes we don't realize how in the incarnation we start to see a glimpse of the gospel story that Christ will usher in through his death. We see God becoming human, God dwelling with his people. Well, what is required for God to dwell with his people? There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a shedding of blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Being fully God and fully man is also essential for Christ's offices that he holds. The offices of prophet, priest, and king. All three of these offices are intercessory offices. The prophet 
is sent by God to God's people to be a representative of God and to speak God's truth to his people. The priest is a representative of the people sent before God to plead before God on behalf of the people. And the king is a representative of the people as a whole to other nations. And he is also an instrument of justice. He, representing God, administers earthly justice in anticipation of the final justice that is to come. It was important for Jesus to represent all three of these roles. And that's part of why the incarnation is so important. If Jesus didn't come as a human, if Jesus came more or less as a ghost, as some early heretics thought, then he would not be able to fulfill these offices. For somebody who's not fully human cannot stand as a priest and intercede for the sins of the people. And somebody who is not fully human could not be descended from the line of David and be descended from the kingly line from which God promised the Messiah would come. And the third importance of his body of flesh is that Jesus had to bear sin as a human. You see, part of Jesus' role as priest is that he is both the offerer of the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice. He offers himself as the sacrifice. And he had to be human in order to bear um, our sin and atone for it. Because, as I've referenced before, without the shedding of blood, there cannot be forgiveness of sins. Romans 5 elaborates on Jesus' work bringing reconciliation where Adam brought division. Listen to what it says in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is why the death of Christ was so important. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to live a perfect life and suffer a bit during his life and die of natural causes. No, it was important that Christ died specifically as a sacrifice. Jesus' death is a final payment for sin. And while Old Testament sacrifices covered sin in a temporary way, Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that can permanently atone for sin and permanently wash it away. What are the results of this? This is what Paul gets into next. First, believers are made blameless before God. All wrongdoing is removed from our account. Why? Because Jesus bore the sins that we committed. And we now bear the righteousness that Jesus lived in. And this is what I referenced before of the double cure. That we're both made righteous and forgiven of sin. And both are essential. And when we understand this, we learn not to rely on our own righteousness. We have to rely on Jesus' righteousness. As the hymn writer says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
Both are needed for our redemption and for our reconciliation with God. Second, it makes us above reproach. Jesus' righteousness being credited to us. He continues on in verse 23 saying, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. First, let's see the believer's continuing hope. And what is this hope? This hope comes from the faith that we have. You see, we are both saved and preserved by faith. And faith doesn't mean that we have undeniable proof of something. But it does mean that we trust and stake our hope on that thing. We set our hope on Jesus. And even though from time to time we'll have doubts, and even though we won't perfectly see Christ and perfectly trust him all the time, we have set our faith on Christ and we have dedicated our lives to trusting him. Second, we see that this continuing hope is stable and steadfast and not shifting. Those who truly believe are kept safe. And it's not by our own doing. Just as we're not saved by our works, we don't continue by our own works. But we're kept safe by Jesus. Uh, in a Baptist church, I'm sure you've all heard the term backsliding. And a lot of times as believers, we go through times in our lives uh, where we perhaps you could say are spiritually in decline but I actually think that backsliding is a great word because the person who is a believer has set their aim for Christ. And though they move backward, their aim ever stays the same, always pointed toward Christ. And those who fall by the way show and prove that they were never truly pointed towards Christ. Perhaps they were taking a walk in a certain direction to see how it leads but those who have truly believed and set their hope on Christ, even though they fail, and even though there will be trials along the way, they'll continue in that trajectory. Finally, Paul reminds them of his own calling to this hope. And the hope is the hope of the gospel. The hope is seeing what Christ has done on our behalf and seeing and trusting in the future fruition of that. Just as we have been justified by faith, and just as we have been able to see sanctification happen in our lives and in other believers' lives, we hope forwards towards the glorification that Christ will bring. We see that Paul has truly staked his life on the gospel. Paul has gone all in on the gospel, He's held nothing back. He's left his home. He's traveled all over the world. He's been shipwrecked. He's been almost killed countless times. And yet he stakes his life on the gospel. And Paul doesn't hold on to the Jewish traditions as a backup. Paul isn't saying, well, let me try this Christianity thing. We'll see if it goes well. And if not, I'll just step right back over here. No, 
Paul has planted his feet on the rock of Christ and trusted that it is steadfast. We also see that this is a gospel that's been proclaimed to the whole creation. Paul is so committed that he will go across land and sea all over the world to tell people about this gospel that is so transformative and brings sweet relationship with God. And third, we see Paul as a minister of the gospel. You see, we know that Paul's ministry was initiated by God, not by him. If Paul had any part in becoming an apostle, you'll have to take a long time to convince me of that. Because he was walking to persecute Christians to kill them, and Christ appears to him on the road and says, why are you persecuting me? And he blinds Paul, and he says, go to this person and you'll receive your sight. And then Paul goes into the wilderness and is taught by Christ for three years before returning to Jerusalem. Paul's ministry and life shows us the supernatural and redemptive person of God. It shows us a God that pursues relationship with us, even though we would reject him over and over and over. And though each of us are called to a different kind of ministry, we were all called to do ministry when we believed. You see, Paul's ministry was a special one. It was a specific one. He was called to be an apostle, something we don't believe still happens today. But each of us has been given certain giftings and certain opportunities and certain personality traits or talents that we can use in service of the Lord. We all have been called to do the work of ministry, regardless of what your background is, regardless of where you're from. When you became a disciple of Christ, when you were justified, when you were saved, you became someone who is now contributing to the kingdom of God. So what can we take away from this? First, we need to keep our eyes focused on the goal and not get discouraged. Paul writes so many of these letters to encourage churches that are undergoing persecution. And even though we don't face persecution like they did, when we get discouraged and when doubts attack us or when we struggle with sin, we can take comfort in the reconciliation that Christ brings. We can set our eyes on the goal and continue looking to Christ. Though everything else fall by the wayside and though we be dragged and tripped and stub our toe on the way, we can pursue following Christ. Second, we see Christ is sufficient. We don't need anything added to the gospel. Christ has done everything that is needed for us. And so when we struggle to live the Christian life, we should reflect on the gospel. We should reflect on the work of Jesus. We should reflect on how we were alienated from God but have been brought near. We should reflect on how God has redeemed a people for himself, a people to live righteously and to share with others God's nature. 
You see, Jesus' redemption shows us who God is. Jesus' redemption shows us that God is a God who loves to redeem people. He delights to redeem people. He's not a God who is quick to punish. Our God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so we should proclaim him to those around us, to those around us who don't know and to those of us who do, because us as Christians need to be reminded of the gospel just as much as those who don't believe. Don't be the kind of Christian who just keeps the gospel to yourself. Paul certainly wasn't. Paul said that this was too good of news to keep to himself. It was too good of news not to share with the whole world. And, as, uh, and we, as people who have been reconciled to God, have the same opportunity to go and share with others and compel them and plead with them to be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you um, for the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. I thank you that we can know who you are through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ, that we can always trust in you, that you will never fail us, that we can always rely on your goodness, that we can always rely on the fact that you have redeemed us. And even though life would give us trials and would test our faith, we set our hope on Jesus alone and trust in him. And as we do that, we proclaim him to a lost and dying world that's always in need. Please help us to do that and help us to worship you as a response to your redemptive work. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.